our trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, it's a Tuesday and that means my friend Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos stops by. Hello, Eric. Can I ask you, um, who are you most outraged at today? Which side have you well, chosen? Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm having to change my cue card from Kiev to Hamas. Man, uh, the, the world got a little more interesting over the weekend. And uh, Eric, I, I'm, I'm surprised people are falling for, though, the same narrative, and I, this is not to pick sides, but I'm telling you, the same people who are telling us who to be angry at and, and who we should be putting on our war face for are the very same people who sold us the lockdowns, the mandates, all of the Every COVID hysteria. Every single time, right? Every single time. And it, it's just, it's a marvel that more people haven't caught on to it yet. Uh, it's, it reminds me of that scene in Orwell's 1984 where Winston is attending a party rally and in the middle of a harangue, the party speaker, somebody whispers into his ear, that uh, instead of being at war with Eurasia, Oceania is now at war with East Asia. And he just continues to rant, except now it's East Asia that they're ranting about. And the crowd doesn't pretend that it doesn't notice. And that's exactly the point at which we've arrived in this country. The party tells us what we're supposed to be outraged by. And the majority of people fall right into line immediately and unconsciously. I, you know, I wish that more people had the awareness of when they're being manipulated. And I don't say that as if I'm totally immune, but I, I will say I've become pretty practiced to the point where now it's it's a lot easier to spot, and I try to encourage people yep. to see it as best they can, but it's it's very disheartening. I've had to just step away from social media because uh, people are just, they're, they're, they're right on the verge of chanting in unison, and that's always a big danger sign. No question. You know, how about just asking questions, due diligence? And in the context that we live in, how about the default position being that whatever the government and the organs of the government, the mainstream press tells us, ought to be regarded with suspicion? I'm not saying it should be dismissed out of hand, but I'm saying that, you know, let's ask some questions, uh, and particularly a question that the detectives ask when they're investigating a crime, which is who benefits, you know? And let's check it out and see what the scoop is. And if we can figure it out, then we can figure it out, as opposed to just sort of clapping like seals and yelling like maniacs whenever the government tells us to do that. Hear, hear. Now, amongst all this, and with all the media focus on, you know, again, Hamas, but you have uh, you've had some wonderful uh, columns here of late. Talk to me about uh, the, the latest one that you just posted this morning. Um, Trump kind of got it right and then turned around and, well, definitely got it wrong. Yeah, well, what he did was kind of illustrative of the reason why the left continues to win. It's because there really isn't any effective opposition to the left on the so-called right. Uh, what Trump did was to, um, at, a, at a, I guess, at a rally in Iowa, denounce the, uh, the government mandating electric cars. And in the very same breath, he was telling these people, uh, one of the things that's bad about the EV mandate is that it will affect the ethanol mandate, which he's for. You know, so it's sort of just like what we were talking about earlier, uh, this, this incongruity and this dissonance of, uh, of, of accepting two mutually exclusive things at the same time and believing each are true. You know, if EV mandates are bad, and they are, then certainly it's also bad to force people to buy ethanol. Yet Trump was talking to a bunch of people in Iowa who uh, depend uh, for their money on the ethanol mandate. And so he wasn't going to say anything bad about it. So then how do you argue against the EV mandate? And the answer is you really can't. 
It just comes down to this stupid dynamic of people on the right uh, denouncing the mandates on the left, but favoring their own mandates, while the people on the left do exactly the same thing. They push the mandates that they want and denounce the ones that the people on the right like. And we get nowhere as a result of that. Yeah, the appearance that they give of, look, I'm fighting against them for all I'm worth, mm-hmm. um, it, it, it's to mask the the real truth, which is, no matter what, it seems like, you know, whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats that happen to be leading out at the moment, they're always leading in the direction of collectivism. Their legislation always seems to have a collectivist taste to it. Every time, and even the rank and file. Uh, years ago, you remember when the Tea Party was a thing? I think oh, I yeah. told you this story, but for the, for the benefit of the listeners, I went to a couple of Tea Party meetings, uh, you know, and these people were denouncing uh, government bailouts and welfare, and at the same time, uh, they were defending Social Security and, you know, funding the government schools. I got into an argument with one of these people about it, and they get really angry when you, you know, touch one of their sacred cows. So it's really just a matter of they want what they want, uh, and, if, and if you want to just be left alone, then you're not what they want. Yeah, and really, that's uh, that's kind of where, where I find myself with so many others. Just leave me alone. You know, I, I don't want to go out there and march. I don't want to go out there and chant. I don't want to go impose anything on anybody. We joked around about this a couple of weeks ago. We want to take over the world and leave everybody alone. But but they won't well, leave you know, us. That's just it. That's exactly it. You know, if you take force, especially legalized force and compulsion out of the equation, so much of the anger, the hate, the tension that increasingly defines the society that we live in would dissipate because, you know, somebody might be annoying, but uh, if they don't have the power, particularly the legal power, uh, to force you to do something or force you to not do something or to hand over your money, well, they're just annoying and you can ignore them, right? So, you know, (laughs) that is the problem. It's not about what we like or dislike. It's ultimately about the ability to force people uh, to do what you want or not what you want. Now, let's let's take a moment to, to look at, uh, you know, the, the House Speaker was ousted here uh, within the last mm-hmm. week or so. Um, talk to me about your take on uh, here's the new speaker, same as the old speaker. Well, yeah, you know, one of the reasons that they, they got rid of McCarthy, as I understand it, um, was because he wouldn't do much, if anything, to prevent more of our money that we work for being funneled to Kiev, right? There's increasing anger and resentment about this limitless spigot of our money that's being go, you know, being sent over there to prop up this regime. Uh, well, they bring in this new guy, or at least they're thinking about bringing him in, Jim Jordan. Um, and Jim Jordan is uh, talking about, you know, how we've got to funnel money to Israel to, to, to finance their war against Hamas. So it's the same thing. It just it never ends. You know, why don't we have a, a, a principled opposition to sending our money anywhere? And, and to leaving it in people's pockets, the pockets of the people who worked for it. Here, here. And, and we really don't seem to have much of a choice, do we? I mean, you know, that, all that uh, borrowed money that we and our kids and their kids are going to be paying back, it, it goes where someone, you know, in the ruling class deems it to best sent. We have no say in the matter. Yeah, you know, I don't know whether this is accurate. I was listening to somebody else on talk radio the other day saying that the United States is now actually borrowing money from China to fund the Ukraine debacle. Interesting. I mean, that's, <laughs> and sad yeah. if, if that's the case. Yeah. But I do think that it's reaching a boiling point in, in the sense that it's no longer just sort of a, uh, an egghead uh, uh, talking uh, intellectual point that you would listen to on you know Sunday morning political talk shows. 
everybody is, is outraged about the fact that they're paying 80 bucks, $100 for two little plastic bags full of groceries. You know, times are getting not just annoying, they're getting really tight. And to have to deal with that at the same time that this government is just throwing money in a most gratuitous and obnoxious way uh, at these endless foreign debacles is becoming, you know, it's not just becoming aggravating, it's becoming insufferable. And I think that they're playing with fire by continuing to do this. Well, and I, I have this great concern, too, that uh, um, whether it's uh, Ukraine, whether it's, you know, this this new dust up in the Middle East, I, I feel like we have turned a corner. I feel like we we are perfectly staged to see a global conflict, and I mean a real global global conflict yeah. conflict emerge. Here's what what makes me very nervous. That is going to be the the dynamic by which people will be brought into line. Okay, COVID's over. Absolutely. People are people are thinking independently and doing their own thing, but people are going to start marching in lockstep and and perhaps be forced to march in lockstep due to a you know quote wartime footing. Of course, you know it, they'll be absolutely terrified and rightly so. And I think that we, it will be nothing shy of a miracle at this point if it doesn't happen. You know, you've got this business uh, in Ukraine uh, with the prodding of nuclear-armed Russia, which has been enormously patient, in my view, with regard to what's been going on. Uh, and then now you've got this thing in the Middle East, which could go kinetic at any time and could be something much more, uh, far more worse than Gaza City being blown up. It could be an American city that ends up getting blown up. It could be the world that ends up getting blown up. And really, all it would take is one major incident here in the United States for old Joe to declare martial law. And there you go. And most of the people would likely, and this is a very depressing thought, simply fall in line. You remember back during the uh, the Bush years, after 9-11, oh, yeah. uh, when that squinty-eyed little psychopath uh, went from being somebody who had, I think, a 34 35% approval rating to 90%. He was the war president, the war monkey, could do no wrong. You know, and, and ever since then, we've had that kind of a dynamic going on. And the Reich's Marshal, Hermann Goering, you know, said it best after Nuremberg. Uh, Goering was many things, but he was not, you know, he was he was a straightforward kind of a guy. Uh, and he said, it's easy to get the population to do what you want. Just tell them that the country is under attack and denounce people who question it as not having patriotism. You know, and that's the dictum that these people have been following ever since. Well, and uh, we know who that's going to be aimed at, right? The, the unvaxxed yes, figuratively and literally. Yes, and of course, all of us uh, uh, white extremist MAGA people as well. <laughs> Basically, anybody who even begins to question anything that the left has to say about anything at all, you're naturally a you know a white supremacist, homophobic, transphobic, nationalist. I mean, endless whatever it is. Hold, hold that thought. Frame you as a threat to our democracy. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. There is a link in my show notes today at thebrianhydeshow.com. Take it right to Eric's site. You can spend a lot of time there getting better informed, engaging in some great discussion in the comments. Eric, I want to share something with you that happened to me yesterday. <laughs> First time that I've seen this happen, but it was a little bit unnerving. I went and gassed up my car. And I, I have a, a card alert that tells me, you know, about uh, what purchases are being made on my debit card. I found this kind of necessary because you know, a couple times it's been hacked and, you know, something yeah. that pops up. What? I'm buying boots in Atlanta? No, I'm not. You know, it, that yeah. uh, it was good to catch it. Well, I get a notification that there has been a $126 charge assessed to my checking account 
in addition to the gas I just bought, which was 50 bucks or less. Yep. And, and it's the, the gas station put some kind of a hold. I don't know how they came up with the amount, but the, I went back and asked them, hey, what's this charge? Oh, well, that's just, that's yep. your financial providers, what they told me, but that's not exactly true. It's the gas station putting that hold against my, my debit card. Um, have you encountered this? Have you talked to people who have, have encountered Based this before? Based on what? No, based on what? What's their what's their what's their reasoning? They told me what did that, you buy, or what do they claim that you owe? Well, they they claim that it's just a temporary hold. It'll go away within a couple of days. But um, and apparently now now that I've been told about this, I looked, and sure enough, there's a sticker on the gas pump that in very fine print tells you, by the way, a hold may be put against your card. Apparently, it's to prevent drive offs or to to prevent people from you know stealing gasoline. But, but that makes no sense. If you use a, if you use a debit card, it's automatically deducted from your account. Yeah, but they they want to make double sure, and so um, yeah, so so basically that that fifty dollar fill up turned into a you know hundred and seventy five dollar um, debit, which I'm thinking. Well, well, we live in a lawless country now, but that strikes me as criminal. Uh, you know, that's something that I would potentially go talk to uh, whatever the authority is in, in in your state. They can't just take your money. And, and tell you they put a hold on your account. I mean, they're taking your money. Hold or not, they're depriving you of the use of your money for something you didn't buy. You paid $50 for gas. You bought the gas. You paid the 50 bucks. They've got no basis, no, no legitimate basis for seizing $150 in addition to that. Well, and it makes me think, you know, I look, I, I happen to have, you know, enough money to cover that. But what if I was, you know, what if I was running on fumes, you know, financially and trying to make it to the end of the month and I've got just enough budgeted for groceries and so forth. And suddenly, boom, you know, I, I I'm overdrawn. Say, right, say, you know, after you bought gas, you wanted to go to the store to buy groceries to feed your family. And now you can't because they put a hundred fifty dollar hold on your account. Yeah. It's the first time I've encountered it. And maybe I, it's possible I'm not understanding it correctly, but it's it's supposedly to deter theft, but uh, but they have the sticker out there saying, you know. It is theft. Deter okay. theft, that is theft. Well, if you don't mind my asking, what was the, um, the the brand of gas, the station? It was Pilot. It's a, it's a big Pilot. truck stop. Okay. Yeah. We have them here. Yeah, we have Pilot here, too. I'm going to look into this for you and see what I can come up with. Okay. Yeah, you know, it, like I say, I was... I was pretty alarmed when I saw that charge come up, but I, I was I was not necessarily feeling like my feathers had been settled after the explanation. It was like, well, it'll come off in a day or two, but I, I don't care. I, a day or two. So they get to float your money, too. Are you going to get interest for the money that they're holding? Yeah, exactly. No, man, I would have raised hell about that. I, I would have called the cops. I would have done whatever. I would have made a big stink about that. All right, well... This, we will we will revisit this topic then because I'm, I'm going to okay. do what I can to learn about it as well and uh, maybe we can compare notes next week I just I had never definitely yeah thank you for telling me about it I'm gonna look into this okay thank you so much now let's I'll move on to something more positive I noticed that uh, you have been uh, test driving the Toyota tundra talk to me about the 2024 yeah. tundra I see these trucks around and I'll admit I get a little bit jealous um, is is it uh, all that <laughs> and a bag of chips? Well, what it is really is a testament to the ingenuity and perseverance of Toyota. Uh, really admire the company. You know, like all car companies, they are struggling to deal with these increasingly impossible federal mandates that are making it very difficult to continue to produce anything that isn't an electric vehicle. Uh, that's why the new Tundra no longer has the V8 that it used to come standard with. You know, the Tundra was one of the few trucks that came standard with a big V8 engine. Well, they had to do away with that, and in place of it is a twin-turbo V6, 
And before people sigh and think, ah, oh, that sucks, well, the V6 makes more power than the V8 that it replaced. Wow. And if you get the optional version of it, which is teamed with a mild hybrid setup, it will go nearly 800 miles on a tank full of fuel. That's a truck. That's a wow. truck that can pull 12,000 pounds that has 437 horsepower, and it can go almost 800 miles on the highway on a full tank of fuel. That's pretty phenomenal. Dang. I'm thinking that the, the fill-up is going to be a, a bit, but if you can go that far, it's probably worth it. Well, yeah. I mean, the fill-up is going to be roughly the same as it would be for any other pickup. You know, it's a truck, so it's got, I think, a 25-gallon tank, something like that. And that's typical for half-ton trucks, 25, 26 gallons. Uh, the difference is that uh, you can go that far, which, by the way, is farther than a Prius can go. That's amazing. Who would have thought? And now I know you have you have made the case that the problem with you know the smaller uh, you know four cylinder and V six engines that are that are turbochargers you have more parts so there's more things that could go wrong yeah. but it's it sounds like it delivers on the power so that that sounds like a good thing yeah it delivers on the power the capability um, all sorts of things and like you you know I have some questions about that. Uh, the the uh, previous five point seven V eight was known to be an extraordinarily uh, well-built, reliable engine that would go 250,000 miles with regular oil changes. So we'll see how this new 3.5 V6 goes. You know, it's under a lot of boost. I think it's up to about 20 pounds of uh, boost. Um, and, you know, that means that there's more internal pressure and more pressure applied to the engine's internals. And usually that tends to mean a shorter life. But Toyota, historically, has done a very, very good job of thoroughly engineering its products. Uh, you know, that's why people buy them. You know, you buy a Corolla, you buy a Camry, you buy a CRV, uh, excuse me, a RAV4. And you, know, you can be confident that you'll be able to drive that thing for 15 or 20 years before anything major breaks with it. So probably that's going to be the case with this Tundra, but we're going to have to wait and see. Okay. Well, I appreciated the write-up. Something else you had pointed out, and I can't remember if it was in conjunction with the Tundra or if it was with something else, um, the the gearing of these vehicles, yeah. it's... You you nailed something that I have been trying to put my finger on for some time, and that is it is so easy to get up to 70 miles an hour. It doesn't feel like you're going as fast as you are, and and it's it's pretty easy to find yourself a little above the posted limit. Or a lot. You know, the, the reason I, I wrote about that and did a video about that is that, uh, you know, I, I usually have a radar detector with me when I drive out of necessity because these vehicles are so powerful and so fast, it's almost impossible to drive the speed limit. This Thunder, for example, uh, you know, you look down, you're going 75, and the engine's turning a fast idle, so it hardly feels like you're even going 50. And that's why it's so easy to get a piece of pain paper, as they say, with these things. You know, I contrast that with driving my old Trans Am, my 1976 Trans Am. You know, it, it, you get up to 60, and you feel every bit of it, and you know you're going 60, 65, 70. So, ironically, uh, it's easier to not get a ticket in something like an old muscle car than it yep. is in any new modern car. <laughs> oh, and it, and it made me harken back to the days of whatever four-cylinder I happened to be driving, you know, and, you know, mm -hmm. getting up to 70 miles an hour. It was, you know, working as hard as yeah. it possibly could. Sure. And by the way, you know, that's the reason why you can have a vehicle like this Tundra with 437 horsepower. Remember, 437 horsepower, that's like twice what you would have gotten in it, or more than twice what you would have gotten in a half-ton truck. Uh, back in the 80s, let's say. So you've got this this incredibly powerful vehicle. It has the same horsepower, roughly the same as a Ferrari had in, in the 80s, uh, that weighs as much as two Ferraris and still gets better gas mileage. 
than a typical half-ton truck with half the power got back in the 80s. Absolutely amazing. Eric, great as always to visit with you. Um, I have no mm-hmm. doubt that between now and the next time we speak, the world will only continue to get a little bit more interesting. But uh, let's do let's compare notes on what's what's going on at the gas pump with the the hold on your your uh, debit card or whatever it is that that I experienced. I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one who has, has run into this, but it's very disconcerting. Uh, yeah, I don't doubt it, and I will look into it, and it will be great to discuss it next week, assuming that we're not all like digging ourselves out of radioactive <laughs> rubble by then. That's the spirit. <laughs> have, have a great week, my friend. You too. Thanks, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for tuning in. Well, the world definitely got a lot more interesting over the weekend. And, you know, I talked about this last week. Remember the emergency test we all got last Wednesday? Given what kicked off this last weekend, does that emergency test not suddenly seem just a little bit more fishy or at least a little more questionable as to, okay, why why again was it so important that we got to test this to make sure that everybody everywhere, no matter where they are, you know, has a, who has a phone, you know, can know that the government is here. We're here for you. Or at least I think that was... Supposed to be what it was all about. Jeffrey Tucker, by the way, uh, from the Brownstone Institute, I believe this was a piece he wrote for the Epic Times, explores what that test on our phones was all about. And I think, uh, I'm feeling pretty vindicated for what I said last week, because I was like, I I wonder if they're just trying to remind us, you know, hey, we're here. You cannot escape us. Listen to what Jeffrey Tucker says. He says, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, had told us long in advance about the alert they would send to phones on October 4th of this year. Many people did not get the message. They had no idea that it was coming. Those who did shut down their phones completely. So there was a sense of shock and amazement when at 2.18 Eastern Time, that was a full two minutes early, FEMA blasted everyone's phones with a loud sound and a sticker that popped up on the screen. And then it went away. And we were all left with an unsettled feeling. Now he says, I seriously doubt that any person felt a sense of comfort over this. Along the lines of, oh, thank goodness the government is caring for me. But he says, in any case, I've not seen anyone say anything along those lines. Mostly there was a sense that something was very wrong that government could achieve something like this. Is my phone not my own? Short answer, no. You could have the phone on silent mode, it still came through. You could have all your notifications off. It still came through. You could have all emergency alerts turned off. It still came through. He's right. That's creepy. The apologist, the talking head, said, well, this is no different than the tests of the emergency broadcast system that commonly appeared on TV during the Cold War. That system was created in August 1963 to alert Americans about war or other grave national crises. It was used 20,000 times over the next 35 years. Never for any real crisis, but just as a way of letting people know that the government is there. So why did this one feel so different? Jeffrey Tucker says, The TV when I was growing up was seen as a household appliance that broadcast pre-existing content. 
It was not something we customized for ourselves, much less carried on our person. The smartphone was supposed to eliminate the sense of otherness of both the phone attached to the wall and the TV in a console in the living room. It was our own property. We choose what it does, how it sounds, what applications it carries, and use it according to our own needs. People have developed a very intimate relationship with their phones. The archives in them tell a narrative story of our personal lives, and the TV never did that and doesn't even do that now. That's why it feels like this is something fundamentally different. Now, people's responses to this vacillated between indifference, annoyance, and alarm. So he says, let's make a case for why you should be alarmed. First and foremost, and this is a great point to consider, there is no single office holder who voted for FEMA to do this. This was the decision of the administrative state. Invading your private space this way sends a message about who and what is in charge. FEMA was the agency to push the button, and he says that is highly significant. The reason? FEMA was the lead agency that managed the disastrous COVID response that shut down churches, schools, businesses, gyms, parks, hospitals for non-COVID purposes and otherwise gave Americans a taste of life without a Bill of Rights. So does that surprise you? Probably. He says it's one of the least reported facts of the entire Sorry episode. And he goes through some history here and talks about how, you know, what happened on March 13th as the COVID hysterics reached a new height The Department of Health and Human Services released the the document PANCAP Adapted U.S. Government COVID-19 Response Plan and marked it as confidential. That document was later released, but he says it's the closest thing we have to a sketch of the government's plans. And it contained a very interesting organizational chart that very clearly assigns all rulemaking power to the National Security Council while forcing the public agencies like the CDC into a backseat position. But he says the story gets even more interesting. Five days later, that authority was transferred to FEMA. We know this from Senate testimony from FEMA Administrator Elizabeth Zimmerman. She told a Senate committee on April 14th, 2021, the following. Quote, there was a 2018 pandemic crisis plan. Plan PANCAP was customized for COVID-19 specifically and adopted in March 2020 by Health and Human Services and FEMA. The plan identified the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as the lead federal agency with FEMA supporting for coordination. However, a mere five days after the national COVID-19 emergency was announced, FEMA became the lead federal agency. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says that's a remarkable revelation. No public announcement of this was ever made. Most people had no clue because, well, the information was classified. Even after this news was made public, it went unreported. People continued to believe and still do that the CDC was the final authority when in fact it was marching to FEMA's drum. All previous pandemic plans had put Health and Human Services as the lead agency with the CDC carrying out the plans. This one was completely different. Starting on March 18th of 2020, the Health and Human Services, which comprises the CDC, NIAID, NIH, and other public health-related agencies, had no official leadership role in pandemic response. Not in determining policy and not in implementing policy, exactly as Lerman writes. Now, why might this be? Well, in fact, the country in those days was taken over by national security, which inevitably involves the intelligence community. 
This is why the Cybersecurity and Information Agency, or CISA, an offshoot of the NSA, had such a huge role in determining whether you were essential and non-essential as a worker. Now, he says you'll notice there's been almost no transparency about any of this. No real apologies, much less justice for what they did to us and the whole country. In fact, on the contrary, they're still very proud of what they did. They're not stepping away from their powers and their right to do it again. And this puts that emergency alert that you got on your smartphone this week in a bigger context. It was a flex and show of power. It was a way for FEMA to say, your phone is not your own. You have no privacy. You have no operationally secure freedom. And we can do it again anytime we want. He says, that was the symbolic purpose. It was designed to codify all the powers they deployed over three and a half years to ruin civil society in America. So no, we're not really talking about an innocent warning system designed to protect you. The same agency which sent the notice was three years ago forcing your business and school to stay closed and imposing mass testing on everyone. This is not protection or security. That's a massive invasion of your rights. So he says, if you have a bad feeling about that noise ringing out of your smartphone last week, you're correct. We are nowhere near being out from under the thumb of the lockdowners. Now he says, I want this crisis to end as badly as you do. Sadly for us, the struggle to regain our core freedoms consumes our lives. But he says, it's worth every effort. I thought that was a very interesting take. And I agree with him. I mean, look, the... uh, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, you know, cause, you know, fear or, you know, uncertainty by sharing this, but um, the world turned a pretty important corner this last weekend and, and it has every appearance that it is going to be headed for broader war. Okay. All the players seem to be lining up. If Hezbollah gets involved, you know, Syria gets involved, Russia and the U.S. and China. I mean, we could, we could see legit World War Three kicking off here. Now, I don't have a crystal ball to tell you what's going on. I can tell you, though, that we are in the midst of a fourth turning. We've been through it before. The Revolutionary War and Founding Era, that was a fourth turning. The War Between the States, or Lincoln's War of Involuntary Union, as I prefer to call it, and the Reconstruction that followed, that was a fourth turning as well. Huge, tumultuous events where the very balance of, uh, you know, what this nation would be, or the the very uh, existence of this nation actually hung in the balance. World War II and the Great Depression, likewise, a massive fourth turning. By the way, the world looked a lot different once the dust settled from World War II, in part because some of that dust was radioactive. We're in the middle of a fourth turning. War, particularly globally and civil war, are likely to sweep the planet. This is going to be a big challenge. So here's the question that, that we have, okay? It's not, not a matter of, are you scared enough? Are you frightened enough? My question is, are you ready for what's coming? And I don't just mean bullets and, you know, Band-Aids and beans and whatnot. Are you ready emotionally, spiritually? Do you have the kind of heart of a person who can face difficult times and find the beauty and find the goodness and be a source of goodness in difficult and trying situations. I believe that you can. And I'll tell you right up front, that's that's what I'm striving to become. I don't know if I have it in me. I want to believe I do, but I don't know. We're all going to find out. Are you ready for what comes next? 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. By the way, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I'm not going to promise they're going to make your world a a brighter place, but they will definitely give you some great food for thought on a daily basis, and I will email them to you free of charge right to your email inbox. By the way, I won't share your email with other people. I'll just, you know, use it to send my show notes out on the days that I do the show. So just go to thebrianheidshow.com, click on show notes down at the bottom of the page. There's the subscribe button. You can take it from there. I want to just touch briefly on the article of the day. I won't go into a lot of detail because it's a fairly lengthy article, but given the widespread rot and just the, what would I call it, devolution that's going on in our society, we are definitely in decline. I mean, you don't need to look too far to, to at least entertain the idea, huh, I wonder if, if that's normal or good or if we're still in our ascendancy. We're, we're clearly not. So the prospect of creating parallel solution, or parallel institutions rather, to allow us to exit the corrupted ones, to me makes a lot of sense. It's peaceful, first of all. It's not some violent revolution. It's, it's peaceful. I'm just going to step over here to a system that works. Parents who pull their kids out of public school systems because they don't want them to become woke, indoctrinated little activists, they can homeschool. That is a parallel institution. <clears throat> Bertine Schaefer has uh, built a substack in a community and has been writing pretty extensively on parallel societies, how to build a parallel society, how to create a free world, and I think more importantly, how to opt out of totalitarianism, which it appears is, uh, you know, it's right there on our doorstep. I want to commend this article to you. I think it's It's wonderful. It covers a lot of different aspects, including some good historical aspects of, yes, it can work, even in seemingly impossible situations. And, and, and that's not to say it's a slam dunk. It's just the easiest thing. Snap your fingers. There's no pain, no effort involved. No, it does take effort. And it takes uh, conviction and courage to take those steps because you have to do it without permission. The people who, who want to rule you, the systems that want to rule you, are never going to tell you, okay, you can you can ignore what we say. I mean, what point would that serve? They want to rule. So you're going to have to give yourself permission and start building whatever comes next, those parallel institutions, those parallel societies. I think we're all going to get a good lesson on this in the days ahead. But my suggestion is the sooner we start, the more familiar it will be, the better whatever we're creating is likely to become. All right. Now, on that note, I'm going to move on. One last article I wanted to share with you. Uh, hey, the world may be catching fire, but at least we can find comfort in the fact that diversity is a top priority for the political class. We may find that out here in the next few months if uh, President Words or Vice President Word Salad becomes president. You know, because uh, Joe Biden is uh, shown the door. Got a great article here from Jeff Thomas on uh, government-enforced racism and sexism. Now, Jeff Thomas writes, A half-century ago, the U.S. was the envy of the world, the land of the free, where virtually anyone could prosper if he were willing to roll up his sleeves and work. He says, America was made great through the immigration of those who wished to pursue the American dream of work equals personal success. 
Now, it's important for us to remember that those who were less ambitious remained in their homelands and helped their country stagnate, while their worker bee counterparts colonized America for generation, for generations, rather. Now, an important lesson here. America was not built on immigration per se. It was built on immigrants with a strong work ethic. Not so today. While there are certainly those who move to the U.S. to pursue the original American dream, far more go there due to the promise of governmental largesse, welfare, free health care, free education, etc., now attract those very same people that stayed behind in previous generations, those who made little or no contribution to the economy. Now, this, of course, degrades the economy as itself as citizens, new and old, are encouraged to consume entitlements rather than work. Of course, the critical ingredient in the land of the free was the free market, the system under which individuals and companies had the ability to make their business decisions based on what was most profitable. The 1960s brought about increased racial enlightenment in the U.S., resulting in the growth of greater opportunities for minorities in the workforce. At about the same time, women were increasingly receiving better educations and were seeing greater opportunities as leaders in business. And again, All this was part of the free market. A free market will invariably benefit from those who are the most capable, regardless of race, gender, or ethnicity. That's a truth writ large right there. What a free market does not thrive on, though, is governmental force. In fact, force is the antithesis of freedom. And the more force, the less freedom. Until eventually the free market collapses under the weight of governmental interference. Now, in recent decades, political correctness arrived on the scene, and it's done a fair bit to degrade the free market in the U.S., but it should not be misdefined as a force. It has functioned through coercion. Coercion is not force, but it's often a precursor of force. Historically, whenever coercive, a so, coercive social trend can be firmly established, it's likely at some point to morph into legislated force. Now listen closely, because this is a powerful lesson. He asks, when will diversity grow legs and become enforced under law? Well, right on cue, the Illinois State Legislature has passed a bill that mandates that all publicly traded companies have a woman and an African-American on their board of directors. Now, of course, in the modern world, it's quite common to see boards of directors with both women and minorities. So why would this be a problem? Well, here we get back to that word, force. To force a board of directors... To have a woman on it is a clear gender discrimination. To force it to have an African-American is clear racism. The law dictates gender discrimination and racism by forcing companies to make decisions based on gender and race. Just as Jim Crow laws sought to suppress individuals based on race, Senate Bill 76 in Illinois seeks to favor individuals based upon race. And if the one woman, one African-American on corporate boards smacks of legislated tokenism, it's not. In creating the legislation, committee members expressed the goal to increase the mandatory number of women on any board to half within a few years. And he says this reveals the objective was to control the entire board based upon forced diversity. And in order to make clear to corporations that the state has taken over the power to determine the makeup of boards... The fine for failure has been set at $300,000 per infraction. I don't know many companies could shrug that off. 
Now, as yet, there's no demand to broader political correctness on boards, but the passage of this bill invites lobbying by others seeking political correctness. So it can therefore be expected that other minorities, Hispanics, Asians, Native Americans, etc., take their rightful place in corporate America, and of course the LGBT lobby can be expected to make their own demands for equality on company boards at some some point. Now of course, natural diversity can only be healthy. The best and brightest, regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, or sexual orientation, should always be sought by corporate boards. This ensures future profitability. The more diversity, the greater the scope of the board. But again, the problem here is not diversity. It's forced diversity. Forced diversity puts the emphasis on those aspects of an individual that are not related to ability or experience. That in turn increases the likelihood of a business failure by forcing companies to regard political correctness more highly than business-like choices. And in doing so, it additionally violates the property rights of the shareholders. In diversity, there is strength. In coerced or forced diversity, there is weakness. You see the difference? Diversity versus forced diversity. Now, is Illinois Bill 76 an announcement that corporate freedom in America has come to an end? Jeff Thomas says no, but it's certainly more than just a symptom of a problematic future for American business. It's one of many building blocks for a collectivist ideal. The concept that government must control the means of production. In this regard, the bill is only one of many that are being passed. And of course, it's understood that a liberal government will lean toward collectivism and a conservative government will should, theoretically, lean toward a free market. But that's not what we're seeing. Both principal political parties in the U.S. are contributing to the move toward collectivism. As Judge Andrew Napolitano has said, there are two wings of the same bird of prey. At this point, those who are hoping that in the future, collectivist, liberal-driven legislature will be countered by free-market, conservative-driven legislature are going to be disappointed. The overall trend of legislation is firmly toward collectivism. Now, roughly half of Americans will regard this new law as an advancement of cultural diversity, but corporate boards are not petting zoos, in which the objective is to collect one of every possible variety of people. An effective board is made up of the best and brightest, regardless of similarities or differences. He says the U.S. is quickly moving away from that principle, and as such will pay the price, as it has been paying for several decades, as productivity continues to exit the U.S., The country was once the world's greatest supplier of goodwill. Increasingly, it's going to fall under the domination of those countries that retain productivity as their central goal. This is The Brian Hyde Show.